Grab your Bible. We're going to be in John chapter 12. We're jumping back into our series, Jesus Is, wanting to learn as much as we possibly can about how glorious and wonderful and holy and perfect and worthy Jesus is. I'm convinced that it's the most important thing that you can ever give yourself to is determining what you believe about Jesus, about God in the flesh, or at the very least, a man who claimed to be God in the flesh. Um, So yeah, so before we jump into John chapter 12 today, I want to tell you a story about a traumatic event in my life. Um, I don't want to over-dramatize it, but as a child, it was somewhat traumatic. Um, I remember the first time I ever went on a serious roller coaster. Um, If you've gone on roller coasters, you kind of, maybe you have the the one where you, I'm not talking like like Space Mountain's kind of like... It's not really, it's a roller coaster and it's wonderful and it's good, but it's not like a roller coaster where you like maybe turn upside down or do something wild, right? So I remember the very first time I was a young kid, I was probably, my mom's like smirking at me right now, I'm not going to put you on blast, don't worry. Um, I wrote it with my mom, I'll get to that in a second. But, so how many of you guys are familiar with Knott's Berry Farm? Uh, Do me a favor not to call you out, I'm not going to make fun of you, I just genuinely want to know who doesn't, when I say Knott's Berry Farm, you're not totally familiar with what I'm talking about. Okay, so Mossberry Farm is this, is this amusement park in Southern California. It started out as a berry farm, hence the, the name Nantz Berry Farm, and it turned into like roller coasters and rides and fun and family and food and the, just an amusement park, right? And when I was a child, I went there with my family. My brother was young. I think he was still a baby. And I was old enough and tall enough now to start riding some of the more intense rides. And... Do you guys remember there was a ride there? It's since been closed, but it was called Boomerang. Okay, so you, I see people nodding their heads. Great. Boomerang was this ride, um, and the reason they called it Boomerang was because you would, you, they'd pull you up. Instead of like, you know, typical, the, the roller coaster goes up the, the hill, the that thing, and it builds your anticipation. This one doesn't do that. This one, they pull you back up a hill and then you go down this like gnarly thing and it has loops and stuff and it comes in and it makes its way back around right next to where it started and you're facing this way. What makes Boomerang unique is that the ride isn't over when you come to a stop up there. Then you Boomerang and go backwards the way that you came, okay? So needless to say, I'm this young boy. I feel this like, okay, my mom gives me the invitation. Hey, you sure you want to go on this? I'm like, yeah, let's do it. I'm tall enough now. I'm going to be a strong man at like eight or something, seven maybe. <clears throat> and so we get in line. And here's the thing, like I didn't really pay that much attention to the ride. So I didn't really know what was coming. And the closer we get to the ride, the more I'm hearing these people scream, you know? And I'm like, dude, maybe this was a mistake. Like these people seem pretty terrified. Like, and then if you've ever, if you remember that ride, they've, like I said, they've since I think torn it down. But the closer you get to the ride, the more you start to see the way it actually works. And... I started, I didn't know that you went backwards until I like, I'm three people in front of me are going to go and you can't like get out of line when there's three people in front of you, you're going to look like the biggest loser ever. Like, no, I'm afraid I'm going to get out. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, whiss out or whatever. So there's three people ahead of me. I see that like it goes backwards and then my, I'm just like going, oh, the apprehension. Like, am I really going to make this work? My mom's cheering me on. She's like, you can do this. It'll be fun. And, um, and we get on the ride. And I can remember, you know, like I said, they, they, they start you by pulling you back and then you shoot forward and do the thing. And I remember like, I'd never experienced anything like that. And I, I'm like bracing myself and I'm going through it and of the loops and the turns and the corkscrews and stuff. And then when we finally get to the part where it like, it, it, it's, it's supposed to finish, you'd think, right? I'm like, I'm exhilarated. I'm slightly terrified, but I'm like, okay, I, I got through that. And then they give you like this, just like a terrifying amount of time for you to collect your thoughts before they whip you backwards. And that starts to happen. And as strong as I was going through it forwards, you know, by the time it started to go backwards, I just at that point was like, ah, like just full on let it go. Like in the words of Elsa, you know, let it go. And uh, I didn't, I didn't vomit. That's not what I mean. I just was afraid and screaming. And so I go back, and I'm just like closing my eyes at this point. 
Like I'm like, I, going forward, I think I could do it okay. I could see where I was going. Going backwards, I'm totally disoriented. and I'm flipping around. It's just, it's kind of crazy. And I remember when the ride finally stopped, just being stunned. Like, what did I just experience? What just happened to me? And I remember, like, <laughs> I remember praying to a God I didn't know while on the ride, like, just get this over with, just get this over with, like, save my life, like, you know, the whole thing. We get off the ride, I'm stunned, I'm, like, totally disoriented, I've never experienced anything like that. My parents are cheering me, I'm like, you did so good, I can't believe you did it, like, it was wonderful. And I remember just feeling like that whole experience was just wrong. (laughs) On so many levels, like, I remember feeling, like, almost a sense of injustice, of, like, Roller coasters are not supposed to go backwards. You can go forward and then you're supposed to be serious. Like, but I remember feeling like cheated almost. Like, like they, they, they tricked me, you know? And like, the name's Boomerang. You can see the ride before you get on. Like, it wasn't anybody else's fault but mine. But just feeling this, like, disorientation. You know, you're not supposed to ride roller coasters backwards. Why do I tell you that story? Here's the thing, guys. <clears throat> Whether I liked it or not, that roller coaster was designed to be ridden backwards. It was the way it was engineered. It was the way that it was intended. It was the way that it was designed. Today's passage in John chapter 12, Jesus tells us something that's startling about life, okay? And maybe even a little bit disorienting. And what he says is whether you like it or not, life is kind of like this roller coaster. Life is a roller coaster that's designed to be ridden backwards. What do I mean by that? It's des- life is, is designed to be ridden in a way that feels opposite to the way that we naturally want it to. And in fact, Jesus would say that his way of living, it's actually not the backwards way. When we don't live his way, it's actually the backwards way. His way is true life, the way that God intended life to be lived or ridden. So hopefully you're in John chapter 12. We're going to jump in there in just a second, but I'm going to pray for us before we do, okay? Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, I just pray that you'd, uh, you'd help us right now. I pray that you'd help us discern your voice, the way that you speak to us, the ways that you guide us, the ways that you point us to Jesus. That's our, that's our prayer. As a church, we want you to just point us to Jesus. If there's anything that's getting in the way of that, blocking that, hindering that, just renounce it in the name of Jesus. We want to see him clearly. So would you help us this morning? We love you so much. And all God's people said, amen. Okay. So we're going to be in John chapter 12, starting in verse 20, going through verse 36. I'm going to talk a little bit, read a little bit, kind of back and forth, okay? So follow with me. If you don't have your Bible, the words are on the screen for you. I'm in the Christian Standard Bible translation. Here we go. John chapter 12, starting in verse 20. Now, some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. The festival there is Passover in the city of Jerusalem, okay? So they went up to worship at the festival, So they came to Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, sir, we want to see Jesus. Verse 22, Philip went and told Andrew, again, another disciple. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Okay, really quickly, have to paint the picture. You've got to understand what's happening here, okay? When it says Greeks, what it's talking about there is it's not talking about just people that are from Greece, Okay, it's referring to them as, as non-Jews. So you kind of like, I know that sounds confusing. It's not a nationalistic thing with, thing with Greece. It's a non-Jew or like a Gentile, if you've heard that phrase before. Gentile just means non-Jew. That's what we're talking about here, okay? So you have these non-Jewish Gentiles that they're going to Jerusalem with this, with this Passover festival happening. They're going there, right? Um, and picture the scene. Picture a, a city, an ancient city with walls and the whole thing, and the population of that city increasing in a huge way for about a week or two because of this big festival, okay, the Passover festival. And what these non-Jews do is it says that they approach Philip, right, because they, what do they want to do? They want to see Jesus. 
they've heard about Jesus. They've heard about miracles and healings and all these things. It's spectacular. the, The word about Jesus is spread even outside of the Jewish communities. And people are taking wind. And these guys come to this guy, Philip. I'm assuming they're guys, but these people, they come to this guy, Philip, and they want to see Jesus. Why do they go to Philip? Why, the cool thing about the Bible is there's always these like details that are there that have so much written, uh, richness if you kind of dig in and see like, well, why did they go to Philip? Here's the thing about Philip. Okay, his name is like a Greek name and the area that he's from is like a Gentile area. So they're approaching someone who's in their similar social network. Okay, we do this all the time. If you, if you go, if you, let's say like hypothetically somebody, a friend or a spouse, or whatever, takes you to like a party where you don't know anybody, maybe it's a work party or whatever, you walk in and let's say, you know, today's a big football day, let's say you're a sports fan, you walk in and you see someone with like your favorite team's hat on, you're like, okay, if I have to get stuck in conversation, at least I can get stuck in conversation with this person, right? Somebody that's in kind of a similar social network as you, similar, similar um, uh, things that you enjoy, passions, whatever. You each tend to identify with people that are like us. That's what's happening here. They see this guy, Philip. They're Greeks. They're non-Jews. They see this guy, Philip, who has a, a Greek name and who's from a predominantly uh, Gentile, non-Jew area, okay? And they approach him. Now, I don't want to spend a ton of time here because this is like a whole nother sermon, but this is, this is the, like the same recipe for the best evangelism you could possibly hope for. What if like people, in, think about people in your social networks. So like work, neighbors, family, friends, all the, your social network. <clears throat> what if the people in your social network, what if they like, they started to hear these amazing things about Jesus. Like people who are following Jesus experiencing like transformed lives. Okay, marriages that were in really tender, difficult, painful places being restored. Like, like, like heal, people getting healed miraculously. Like Jesus still does all that today. He's been doing that in our church. So you, just imagine people in your social networks that are hearing these amazing things about Jesus, and what if these same people, what if they viewed you as someone who was like safe to come to if they wanted to learn more? I think so oftentimes Christians feel all this pressure to evangelize, you know? And they like, that's why they get blowhorns on the street corners and freak everybody out. If you've ever done that before, I'm not dogging on you. I know people have gotten saved that way, so... God has a way of doing incredible things by any means necessary. So I'm not, I'm not slamming that. I'm just saying like, what if? What if your social network just heard amazing things about Jesus and just knew that you were safe to, safe to come to if they wanted to learn more? Maybe here's like the, the sobering question. Do people in your social networks even know that you're serious about following Jesus? Or is that like a, part of your life that's kind of hidden maybe or like an accessory or like because here's the thing step one if we talk about um, social networks friends family neighbors we talk about them coming to know the love of Jesus right not like a project not where we try to like tally them up on the scoreboard no they're people they're 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 infinitely valuable because they were made in the image of God okay eternal souls so they're valuable people right these the, the your, your social networks Step one in seeing those people come to know the love that Jesus has for them is them knowing, then them having someone in their life who knows Jesus. The Bible talks about like, if we don't tell them, how are they gonna know? But step one in seeing these people that are in our social networks coming to know the love of Jesus is them having someone in their life who knows Jesus, okay? I'm just gonna throw that out there. Ponder that. That's a different sermon. Let's keep going. Verse 23. Verse 23, Jesus replied to them. Remember, so there's this inquiry coming from the non-Jews through Philip and Andrew. Hey, these these non-Jews, these Gentiles, these Greeks, they want to see Jesus. Verse 23, Jesus replied to them. It's funny, really quickly before I read this, Jesus' replies sometimes are not (laughs) directly answering the questions that we have for him. Check this out. Jesus replied to them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Remember last week we talked about glorified was his crucifixion, right? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, 
Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. If it, but if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Okay, here it is. Here is the backwards life laid out plainly from Jesus. Okay, Um, if I use the phrase the good life, does does everybody know what I'm kind of talking about here? The good life, yes, no. Um, So let's, let's have a little fun together, okay? I want you to imagine with me, like actually engage with me, okay? Imagine like you could design the good life for yourself. What would that look like? Like you hear people talk about all the time, like oh, I'm just living the good life, man. Pursuing the good life. What would that look like for you? Because I think it's, kind of, it's slightly different for different people. But kind of have some fun right now. Like let's play pretend. Like if you could engineer the good life for your life, what would it look like? Resources. Okay, so like coal or like, <laughs> what are we talking about here? There we go. Money to buy what I want. Thank you for being honest. Okay, so we got money. What else? Health. Time. Here's some things that initially I thought of, and then I'm going to tell you what the, uh, the internet said. Okay, uh, financial independence, <laughs> number one, money. Enough money to where you don't have to depend on anybody else, right? So financial independence. Uh, like plenty of leisure time. It's funny, I I wrote down three. And the third one I wrote down was like being happy. I just want to be happy. I got to living the good life. Okay, here's what uh, the false theologian known as the internet says. I say the internet, essentially our culture, okay? Um, These are some of the things I found when I just Googled it. The good life is following your heart. That's one of the most dangerous things you could ever do. Okay, that's what Hitler did. Um, So following your heart. (laughs) Really quickly. um, (laughs) I just want to be clear. Uh, I'm looking around the room seeing a lot of Disney fans. I'm a Disney fan. I think there's so much of how, like Walt Disney and his story and the way that he has engineered this kind of like beautiful expression of what it looks like to, to kind of bring redemptive order into a narrative into things. It's amazing, okay? But this idea of following your heart can be very, very dangerous. It's not biblical, okay? There's elements of Disney that I'm just friggin' love. Some things like the following your heart piece, not a fan, okay? So the first thing, following your heart. The second thing, pursuing your dreams. There's nothing wrong with that. I think every human being should pursue their dreams, okay? Uh, the next one, living in luxury, The next one, having wealth, seeking and experiencing pleasure. Actually, a lot of them had to do with pleasure on the internet. So seeking and experiencing pleasure. This next one, eliminating resistance to you receiving pleasure. (laughs) It's living the good life. Okay, so I shared a few of these. Essentially, the theme with all of this is ordering life around you. That's the good life. What you want, namely your own pleasure. Um, so, if, if that's the good life, um, what would, the opposite of the good life then would naturally be what? The bad life. Right? The bad life. This is why, like we as a people, our culture, we have so many things influencing us, defining things for us. The good life is ordering your life around you. Just spoiler alert, I'm gonna, my position today biblically is that that's not true, okay? But culture would say the good life is ordering life around you, and if that's the good life, then anything in opposition to that is the bad life that we want to avoid, and that's what makes what Jesus says here feel so disorienting and backwards. Listen to what he says. Look back at verse 25. The one who loves his life will lose it, 
and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus' words, not mine, okay? Um, at first glance, if you, if you wanted to butcher this, you'd be like, okay, so is he telling us like we should cultivate a hatred of life? Like, what is Jesus saying? No, that's not what he's saying here, okay? What he's doing is he's explaining what life in God's kingdom looks like. Remember, Jesus is a king coming to establish a new kingdom. It's war. It's an invasion. And what he's doing is, remember, he's the light of the world, so he's helping us see things clearly. There's two opposing kingdoms. What Jesus is doing there, here's he's explaining what life in God's kingdom looks like. And the good life, according to King Jesus, isn't ordering, yourself, ordering life around yourself. The good life, according to Jesus, is dying to self. Like self-sacrifice. Living for the benefit of others. According to Jesus, that's the good life. And here's the thing. That feels really backwards oftentimes. Because I want what I want. If I can help other people along the way, that's great. But ultimately, my life is ordered around me because that's the good life. But here's the thing, it feels backwards, right? but follow Jesus' logic for just a second, okay? It might feel backwards, at least it does for me, but follow Jesus' logic here, okay? Imagine, uh, imagine a marriage. Imagine a marriage, you have a husband and a wife, and let's, let's play the two scenarios out. You have a husband and wife where the husband is living the good life. He's orienting his life around himself. What he wants, his needs being met, it's, it's ultimately for him. If he can help his wife in the process, cool, but it's ultimately for him, his needs, his wants, it's about him. And the wife does the same thing. Her wants, it's about her orienting her life with her at the center, okay? You're gonna have an explosion of conflict in that marriage, you're going to have so many needs being met and then justifying why we don't love each other based on the other person not loving me the way that I want to be loved because my life is oriented around me. You tracking with this logic, right? Now, on the flip side, you have Jesus' version, his definition of the good life, being where you literally, it's self-sacrifice. It's dying to self. So same couple, husband, wife. Husband is like, I exist solely for the benefit of my wife. Like, I die to myself. Her needs go before mine. Her wants and desires go before mine. I'm living to see her flourish, to blossom into everything that God has created her to be. And then you have a wife who's functioning in the same way, dying to herself every moment, every day, choosing her husband over herself, his needs, his wants, his desires, what's best for him. I'm not talking about being like steamrolled here and, being, and setting yourself up for abuse. I'm talking about just dying to yourself. Like, whether you're married or not, which marriage would you want to participate in? Which one sounds more fulfilling? Which one sounds more beautiful? Which one reflects God's kingdom more? I don't say that to make any of you married couples feel guilty. Like, I, I let my wife down on the regular, man. But I want you to see, like, follow Jesus' logic here. Like, and let me take it a step further. Let me just imagine this room, okay? A community of people what if we all kind of live with us at the center, right, orient our lives around ourselves versus the opposite of that, which where we'd like live for the benefit of others, die to ourselves, be totally concerned with the needs of other people and not me. The, the latter is a room full of people where there are no needs because everybody's so concerned with meeting the needs of other people, your needs are gonna be met in the process because the whole room is concerned about meeting your needs, versus all of us jockeying for position, politically, resources, all this stuff, because I gotta get mine. And then if I can get mine, then, then maybe I'll be generous, then maybe I'll help you out too, which is cool, but you have a divided people. You have a bunch of individuals. So I just want you to follow Jesus' logic here. Even though it feels backwards, even though a lot of times we naturally want to orient our life around ourself, that's actually not the good life. King Jesus, who designed life, is saying, actually, the good life is dying to self. 
So really quickly, one of the things that's been super helpful to me in my like, discipleship to Jesus is whenever, like, whenever your life feels stagnant, you ever feel like you're just spinning your wheels sometimes? So whenever your life feels stagnant, whenever your life feels kind of unfulfilled or bizarre or just off or boring or unfruitful or just like something is off, it doesn't feel right. One of the things that's been helpful for me is maybe this will be helpful to you is I oftentimes recognize I'm kind of living like this seed who's preserving his life instead of dying to self. I'm, 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 I'm living for me. I'm, I, it's about me. I'm avoiding dying to myself and living the good life, which will then produce life. So if that's you, I just want to encourage you, maybe, just maybe, you're living like that seed that's preserving its life. That Jesus is saying, no life will continue. Think about it. Let's keep going. Verse 27. Jesus still talking. He says, now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? but that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Verse 30, Jesus responded, I love this, this voice came not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world, that's Satan, will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. So Jesus knows the cross is coming. Remember, we talked about this last week. This is the final week of his life. He's coming to Jerusalem knowing they're gonna, they, these people, he's coming to a city full of people who knew, he knew were plotting to kill him. So he knows what's up. He knows if he's lifted up and he's saying this publicly, he knows how he's going to die. Um, one of my absolute favorite things about Jesus is that he doesn't just teach with his words. Like he's not just an eloquent, amazing wordsmith. He's not just infinitely wise with what he says, when he says it, how he says it. He is, but he doesn't just teach with words. He teaches with action. Like he models what he teaches um, I learned real quickly becoming a parent that <laughs> what I model is way more effective with parenting my children than the words that I use. Uh, example would be stop doing that and they oftentimes will not listen to my words because they're defiant little girls just as much as I was a defiant little boy. But I learned really quickly like my actions speak so much louder than my words with my kids, okay? M the modeling that I do goes way farther than the instructions that I give, okay? So one of the things that I've been like, just really trying to be as intentional as I possibly can with my daughters is I want to model things for them that I think are very, very helpful and very, very valuable to them as they grow into adults, as they become the women that God has created them to be, okay? So the first one that I wanna model for them of just the importance of prayer, and I'm not talking like religious prayer, like go in, put your time in, mark it off. No, I'm talking like engaging with God on deep levels, okay? In, in inviting him into every single area of life, right? So, so one of the things that's been really cool, I think, for us and for me is my girls now, because I've modeled this idea of like not just, um, like I said, not just religiously praying, but going to God in prayer all the time, having that be natural, when my girls wake up in the morning, they know where daddy is. They know that daddy is with Jesus every morning. It's not even like they wake up, that's where they know dad is because I'm, they know I'm with Jesus <clears throat> every single morning. When we have decisions to be made as a family, stop, we're gonna pray and seek the wisdom of the Lord. Jesus, what would be the most wise thing for us to do here? What would glorify you the most? What would bring the most joy to others and ourselves? What would reflect you like seeking God in prayer with big decisions, small decisions, you name it. I want that to become natural to them so that they know, oh, when there's a decision to be made, there's a place that I go, there's, or not a place, there's a person that I go to who knows me and loves me and seeks what's best for me. 
right? <clears throat> this idea of big decisions. When, when we need help in general, God help me. I'm having a hard time. I'm feeling down or I'm, I'm, I'm losing sight of the truth about what you, like I'm, I'm not believing what's true about me, that you love me unconditionally, not based on my performance. I need help. Big things, small things. <clears throat> Here's one that's been really, really cool for the girls is for them, the, the first thing that they do whenever somebody gets hurt is they're like, oh, we need to pray. Not, we need to call the doctor. I'm all about going to the doctor. Okay, it's important. Common grace, God has gifted men and women to care for us in, in practical ways like that. It's beautiful. I'm not anti that at all. But like they know over and over again, whenever there's, when there's hurt, when there's pain, whether it's emotional, physical, whatever, our first response as a family is we're gonna pray, we're gonna bring it to Jesus. Sometimes he heals us. It's wonderful. Sometimes he says not yet because he has another plan happening. He's carrying out some other redemptive work through it. Right? But it's so cool. Like, whether it's on the playground, in our household, in public, my girls, their first reaction to someone getting hurt is, oh, I'm gonna, let me pray for them. That becomes natural. Why? Not because I'm, I'm a great parent. I'm actually a really crummy parent oftentimes. It just takes intentionality of what we model for our kids. Does this make sense? Why? Because my actions as their father, they, it speaks way louder than my words, man. Way, way, way louder. One of the things, again, I I think this is really, really important is I want my kids to like genuinely prioritize the church. I want them to know that they were created for community and they were created to be like sanctified, which means made more like Jesus amongst community. It's like the vehicle that God uses to, to grow them in holiness and to exercise their development of their gifts and the whole thing, right? <clears throat> so I want them to prioritize the church. Now I can say like, hey kids, like I can say that I desire that my kids would love and serve the church, but listen, if the church isn't a priority for mom and dad, like if we're not modeling that the church is a priority, it won't be to them. It won't be because what was modeled was something else. If being with the church, if my, my kids pick up on this, right, because my actions speak louder than my words, if being with the church, whether it's on a Sunday or with your gospel community throughout the week or when there's needs arise or when there's meal trains to be delivered or when there's whatever, you fill in the blank. If that's like an optional thing, if that's an optional thing, if it's something that we as a family do when we feel like it or when it's convenient, then my kids, they're not gonna care much for the church. They might see that it's helpful, but they're not gonna see it for the beautiful, necessary thing that it is in their life. because I've modeled that it was an accessory, right? Next one, really, really important, repentance. Like this idea of turning away from sin. <clears throat> I learned real quickly the power of apologizing to my children. Like going to them and going, hey, daddy blew it. The way he talked to mommy, like that was not okay. I was unkind to mommy. I, I disobeyed Jesus in the way that I talked to mommy. Um, and, and, I, and I sinned against God, I sinned against her. Um, and I just want you to know, like I've gone to Jesus he forgives me. He loves to forgive. Jesus died so that daddy could be forgiven of all of his sins. Jesus died so that you could be forgiven of all of your sins and set free from that. So I've gone to Jesus and I've, I've, like, I've genuinely enjoyed receiving his forgiveness, but I want to come to you and just say, like, I'm sorry. I apologize what I did was wrong. And I want to ask for your forgiveness too. I'm turning away from that. That's not the man that, daddy, that, that, that Jesus created daddy to be. And I'm not going to do that. I'm moving away from that. That becomes a normal thing. I want them to see that. Because that's the life of the, that's a Christian life. It's literally, the scriptures, it's marked by repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Essentially, turning away from sin, putting your trust in Jesus. That's what faith is. Turning away from sin, putting your trust in Jesus. What he says about you. Does this make sense? So I want that to become natural to them. So they don't, they don't look at repentance as like, oh my gosh, I can't like confess sin to people. If people found out, they're going to look down on me and like, no, that's, that's, that's reinforcing fear of man. I want them to know that they can take responsibility for the poor choices that they've made because they have the gospel, the good news that, that Jesus' life, death, resurrection, like it frees them, man. I want that for them, okay? So I say all this to say tons of examples. Jesus is not just a talker, he's a walker, right? Like remember the, the classic phrase in the 90s, those of us that grew up in the 90s and the 80s? Jesus, like he doesn't just talk the talk, man. 
He walks the walk. He demonstrates, he models. It's the best way of teaching. He's the greatest teacher of all time. And he knows that dying to self is living in God's kingdom. People can talk about kingdom all they want. There's amazing elements of God's kingdom. That's why we we crave it so much at a soul level. But if it doesn't involve dying to self, dying to self is the gateway, man. Jesus knows dying to self is living in God's kingdom. Self-sacrifice is the way to truly being alive. And he doesn't just tell them with his words, he models it for them. Really quickly, look back at verse 27. I love this. He says, now my soul is troubled. Remember, this is God in the flesh. My soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? Like, should I, should I, should I, is that where I should go? Then he says, but this is why I came to this hour. This hour meaning this moment of glorification, this moment of going to the cross. Father, glorify your name. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is, not my will be done, but yours. He's, he's dying to self. Like, you, gotta know, you, gotta, you can't separate the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. Fully God, fully man. So I want you to notice the humanity here. Uh, I'm troubled. Like, I know the cr- cross is intense. I'm a, little, I'm a little troubled here at a soul level. This is gonna be really gnarly, you know? The people closest to me are gonna betray me and abandon me, and I'm gonna experience a gruesome execution. Like, whoa, he's troubled. Like, you gotta know, he wasn't a robot. Jesus was not like, must go to cross. That's not what he's doing. His soul is troubled about it. Do you know what that means? That means he was tempted not to do it. The Bible says he was tempted in every, every way, yet without sin. So being tempted to sin is not sin. It's giving in to that temptation to believe a lie about God. That's your motivation for grabbing hold of something that's untrue, which would then lead you to sin. Okay, his soul is troubled about it. He's tempted not to, but what does he do? He chooses kingdom life. He chooses dying to self. Let's keep going. Verse 34. We're going to finish out this passage right now. Then the crowd replied to him, we have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the son of man, the Messiah, must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Really quick, they're not like, it's not a genuine inquiry about like, who is the Messiah? Like, who is this guy? No, what they're, what they're saying here, what they're communicating here is like, what sort of Messiah, what sort of Savior finds glory in death? It feels a little backwards, right? Keep reading verse 35. Jesus answered, the light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of light. Jesus said this, then went away and hid from him, hid from them. Okay. A lot of talk of light here, right? If you caught caught that. If you've been journeying with us in this series, Jesus made it really clear, like, he's the light of the world, right? He's the light of the world. What is he doing here? He's making an appeal to these people. He's making an appeal to them for them to believe him. Not just believe in him, but believe him. Trust what he says. Okay, and he says, so that, believe me, trust me, so that you, be, you may become children of light. Like, what does that mean? Children of light. Um, like I said earlier, uh, earlier this week, we got to meet baby Ellie. And it was so cool to like, we've been praying for her for months. We got to meet her, see her face to face. And it was cool, Ebony got to hold her for a little bit. And I took a picture of Ebony holding <clears throat> baby Ellie. And I just like, I, just looking at baby Ellie's face, like I just, I love Herrick and Heather so much. <laughs> I just, I love them so dearly. And I'm looking at this little baby who is a, 
essentially like a collection of mom and dad, right? She's like in a, a collection, not the right word. She's like a, help me with this. Combination, thank you so much. A combination of mommy and daddy. Like I can see some of Herrick's features. I can see some of, of Heather's features, right? Like in baby Ellie. She's so cute, so tiny. But children resemble their parents, Right? So just looking at this little baby's face, I can feel all the feelings that I have for Herrick and Heather, and I can see her, I can see their resemblance in her. Children resemble their parents. This passage, it ends with Jesus giving a wonderful invitation. He's giving an invitation to become children of light, to to follow in his footsteps as a son And that's not gender, that's inheritance talking, okay? Amen. So he's giving this invitation to become children of light, to follow in his footsteps of the son, to live the true good life, right, of dying to self, to to be a child of light is to resemble God like a child resembles their parents. And really quickly, this language of light, it's really, really intentional. Because what does light do? Light eliminates darkness. It eliminates darkness. Um, you guys know what a disco ball is, right? Yeah. Okay, so if you're not familiar with a disco ball, <laughs> sure do. <laughs> so disco ball, it's like this large, round object that has a ton of little slots of mirrors all over it, basically. I think like a bunch of little pieces of mirror glued to like a basketball, okay? That's a disco ball, right? <clears throat> and what happens is, you guys know this, right? You have a source of light, like one of these, shooting at the disco ball, and then what happens? It illuminates the room, right? <clears throat> so what the disco ball does is it multiplies the source of light all around the room, Okay? That's what it means to become children of light. You have a source light that you receive that then you then reflect all around. And notice it says children of light. It's a plural here. Again, there's, there's details in the scriptures, guys. The plural of children means multiple, a collection Listen, this idea of becoming children of light, of of being a disco ball, like that's the life that Jesus invites us into. It's the life that he models. I'll close with this. I'll call the band up. You guys still with me? We we doing okay? Okay. Okay, so so here's my question for us that I think is helpful to get our, our minds working and our hearts involved. Here's my question. What's the outcome? Like, what's the outcome of following Jesus, of living as a disciple? Because I'm convinced if we can see the outcome of this, again, following King Jesus' logic here, look back again at verse 26 with me really fast. Again, what's the outcome of following Jesus, of living as a disciple? Verse 26, these are the words of Jesus. If anyone, I love that it says anyone, like it's huge, if anyone, Remember, he's addressing the request of the non-Jews to see him. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What's the outcome? Can you see it? It's beautiful. The outcome, Jesus says, where Jesus is, there my servant also will be. So the outcome of following Jesus is you get him. You get him. You get to be with him. You get to know him now and forever. Closeness, like he's the reward. He's the prize. The outcome of following in his footsteps is you get him now and forever. But there's one more thing here. There's one more outcome. Did you catch what it was? It's profound. Remember, consider how Jesus responded to these non-Jews wanting to see him. 
you remember what his response was? He didn't answer the question directly. He didn't say, okay, bring him here. He didn't say, hey, make an appointment, sign up with my secretary, you know, I'll come see you in a second. Look at, remember how, how he responded to them. <clears throat> the disciples, they bring the request and he responds by telling them the parable of the seed. He responds by telling them the parable of the seed. So essentially, his response is that his disciples would follow in his footsteps because he's dying to himself and it's gonna multiply fruit, right, the picture. So he's saying his response is that his disciples would follow in his footsteps, that they would become children of light who reflected self-sacrificial love to everyone around them. Are you seeing the picture yet? So, for the purpose that more people would experience him through the children of light, his disciples. So essentially what he's saying is, is, hey, look at my disco ball. These people that have received the light of the world, they've received it, right? They've seen Jesus model the good life. Self-sacrificial love, dying to self. They've received that. They've seen him model it and then they reflect it to the world around them so that the whole room gets lit up. Anyone. If the church is anything, it's a disco ball, man. And that's silly and funny, but hopefully you remember it. That's the point of me saying silly things like that. So, the outcome, that's our question here. What's what's the outcome of it? The outcome of a person following Jesus is they receive and they reflect. If you remember anything I say, receive and reflect. It's a Christian, it's a disciple, it's a follower of Jesus. They receive and they reflect. They receive and they reflect. They receive the self-sacrificial love of Jesus for them. Jesus laid down his life, lived the perfect life they never could in their place, and then died the death they deserve in their place for their sin against him. Self-sacrificial love on display through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They receive that. You can't reflect light that you're not receiving. Step one, they receive it, right? And then they reflect it to the world by what? Doing the same thing. Following in Jesus' footsteps, being children of light living that same self-sacrificial love. And what does that do? It brightens up the whole room. It reflects the light of God. Are you guys with me in this? This is massive, but I think the church just misses it. They seek after all kinds of stuff, health, wealth, comfort, even, even, even miracles, as amazing as, that, as they are, we should pursue them, signs, wonders. If it's not rooted in self-sacrificial love, it's not of the kingdom. Self-sacrificial love, according to Jesus, that's the good life. That's the kingdom life with him as king that he models and goes before us and shows us how to do it. All right. I'm gonna ask you to stand if you're able. I wanna pray for us. I I feel like the spirit wants to minister to us. Don't sweat the babies, mamas. If you can hear me, mom, don't sweat the babies. We love them. Okay, so here's what I want to do. We're going to spend some time kind of waiting on the Lord. Um, So what I want to ask you to do is I want to ask you to close your eyes for the sake of focus, not for the sake of being overly spiritual. So I'm going to ask you just to close your eyes right now. And we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to minister to us. Holy Spirit, we invite you to have your way in our hearts and in our minds right now. And because, um, because your body and your mind and your soul and your spirit are, are interconnected, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite you to even just posture yourself because you're so connected. I'm going to invite you to, uh, to put your hands out in front of you as a sign of receiving. You don't have to do this. This is a, an act of faith of like, I just want to receive from you. You're not earning anything. You're, I, you're recognizing that your body, mind, and soul is connected. 
There's a reason why we sing praises to Jesus and not just think praises to Jesus because we're spiritual beings, body, mind, and soul, all integrated together. So Spirit, we, we, we invite you. We want to receive from you right now a, a personal awareness. I pray over the room right now, a personal awareness of the self-sacrificial love of Jesus for every child in this room. Help us to receive the reality of your love and grace for us individually. It's not just for the people standing next to us. It's for, it's for me. And now, Spirit, I ask you to speak to every single one of us in a voice and in a language that we ourselves understand. In what ways are you calling us to reflect you to those around us? In what ways are you calling us to actually live the true good life, the life of dying to ourself? Would you lead us in this? Would you highlight areas right now, Holy Spirit, that you desire for us to experience true pleasure? You, you have not called us to abandon pleasure as though it's a bad thing. You're just transforming us of how we define what is pleasurable. True pleasure is not orienting our life around ourselves. True pleasure is dying to self, living for the benefit of others. True pleasure is self-sacrificial love. That's the good life. So right now, Holy Spirit, would you start highlighting things in the hearts and the minds of every, every, every man, woman, and child in this room, ways that you're calling them, inviting them to die to self so they can experience the truest pleasure. They can truly live the good life that you modeled, Jesus, and reflect that to the people around you. Receive and reflect receive and reflect just like a silly disco ball Spirit we invite you to minister to us we pray over our band right now you'd use them to minister to us we pray over um, these elements right now this body this blood the gluten-free bread symbolizes his body. The juice, it symbolizes his blood. God, we want to respond by receiving and reflecting because you modeled that perfectly for us, Jesus. You received the love of your Father and empowered you to then reflect what he's like to the world around us and then you invite us to do the same. Empower us, Holy Spirit. We need you. This is not something we can do in our own strength. We need supernatural power. So fill us, Holy Spirit. We love you, and we pray these things in your holy name, Jesus. Amen.